0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is.
1: Bridget Connor.
0: Prof Connor, Prof C, Prof B. It's great (laughs) to see you. Now, how are you and where are you?
1: Toby, thank you so much for having me. I'm absolutely delighted to be with you. Um, I am coming to you from Tamaki Makoto, that is Auckland, New Zealand.
0: And New Zealand Aotearoa, right?
1: That's right. Yes, Aotearoa. Uh,
0: Yes, can you correct my pronunciation there, please? Yeah. (laughs) How how do I say it correctly? Seriously. Aotearoa. Aotearoa. Yeah, I had the emphasis wrong because I think I've only ever read it, actually, although I use it all the time in class, much to the confusion of the (laughs) students. Yeah, that's the thing. You you have lived much of your life outside that country but did grow up there. What's That's it like right. to be in a place that seems to be changing its identity in terms of, you know, I note that on your website you describe yourself as Pakeha, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, so white girl, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That probably wouldn't have been the case on a university scholar's webpage 15 mm-hmm. years ago. Am I right in saying that?
1: I think you are probably right in saying that. In fact, I'm sure that this, when I was starting out as a young, green, little um, teaching fellow, whatever I would have been called back in the early 2000s, um, starting out my academic career, I would not have had Pākehā in my in my profile, probably as an identity marker, nor would I have had my pronouns as I do now. So you're right in a number of ways things have changed but yeah toby it is interesting i mean i um in terms of my journey which is both personal and professional i left i grew up here as you said and then i left to move to the united kingdom to to live because i hadn't lived overseas before and because i still had my I had a grandparent who was still alive in Scotland at that time. So I wanted to move for personal reasons. I also went Mm. to the UK to do my PhD and I ended up staying in the UK for 12 years. And um, so I then returned here to Aotearoa in March 2020. COVID did come into it. And I would say that has been one very interesting part of my return has been – Seeing how things have changed here so much in terms of, I mean, many things, but I think um, the growing understanding at multiple levels of of Aotearoa New Zealand as a bicultural nation, um, as a kind of a a growing um, awareness from both Māori and Pākehā that. <laughs> like when did we not know this that that this is a cologne this is this was a nation founded uh you know with deep colonial roots there's just been this kind of flourishing i think of awareness and understanding much of it having come i think from Maori political social and educational activism from the nineteen seventies especially onwards and there's just a real feeling here, I think, and it's it's very material now that um that things have changed, that you talk about your identity as certainly as Pakia for myself, but also as as Māori. Um that we talk about what that means to who we are and why we are here. And um and I think also that then plays into um, what are our responsibilities when we continue to live in this land, you know, and do research here about about New Zealand as well?
0: And what what when you say bicultural, what about people who are neither of Pacific origin nor of British origin, because it's yes, an increasingly mi- diverse migrant population as well, isn't it?
1: yes it is and yeah apologies when i say bicultural i guess what i mean is that the that the nation was founded on te tiriti o waitangi the treaty of waitangi which recognised uh which recognises tangata whenua maori as the indigenous people of this land and it and it recognises the Maori version of the Treaty of Waitangi as well as an English version so bicultural in terms of the languages oh, yes. but you're absolutely right that more and more i mean yeah there are many many more <laughs> peoples that make up um that make up New Zealand and again there's really interesting language that has now developed one of the other terms um that we now hear quite a lot is to iwi which would mean you're a kind of in general you are a visitor you know you are someone that has maybe arrived in this land from a different place but you take up an identity as a as a kind of respectful visitor and a respectful you know kind of a person that's here and recognizes that the indigenous first people of the land as well as kind of you know kind of i don't know quote uh integrating into New Zealand society so it's interesting how the kind of language is developing to speak about it um that's not to also say that there is a lot of hostility from certain corners of New Zealand society about how things are quote unquote changing for the worse rather than the better and now yeah we're getting into kind of interesting recent political discussions that now mean we have a much more conservative uh right leaning government than we did a year ago
0: now i don't i don't want to take us too far down this route not because it is uninteresting because it fascinates me as someone who's never even been to the country but because the country is an important part of your work but only part thereof mm. In asking you what's on your mind now, some of that might be, an answer might be about where you are now, but it might not be. So share with the group, if you would, Prof B, what's (laughs) dynamizing, propelling, concerning, preoccupying you?
1: Oh, Toby, what a great opening question. I mean, I do think at the moment um what is dynamizing and interesting me is what is going on here in the place that I am now in the place I was born um but I think that is also very closely related to the to the journey I've taken in the in the in the last few years and the journey through covid as well so it's interesting i mean right now here i am i am an associate professor of communication at the university of auckland and i've been in that job for a couple of years so so i'm thinking a lot about what it has meant for me personally to return here after a long time away um thinking a lot about the privilege that I had to even be able to go to the UK and live for all of that time, become a dual citizen, all the advantages that were afforded to me that enabled me to go and do that. And then I worked at King's College London for 12 years. So that was also a whole set of privileges to move into an institution where there were um, portraits of the royals on the... In the hallowed halls of that institution, um, so I just find myself at a moment when I've come back to this place. I came back to it also in a moment which um, felt kind of politically and socially really quite positive and uplifting. If anyone knows anything about um, Aotearoa New Zealand and our politics, we had the previous government we had was a was a Labour government. That means kind of left, centre left led by Jacinda Ardern, who I think is probably pretty well known to people um, as a kind of a young, dynamic woman, leader, prime minister. She, She gave birth and had a baby during her time in office. There were a number of ways in which she was seen to be dynamic for the nation and for kind of on the world stage, kind of powerful woman leader, in numerous respects, she also led us through the COVID pandemic. So, and we were seen to be kind of really world leading in the national response to that horrific crisis. Which it's not like we're out of COVID yet by any means. Um, so, there are all these ways in which it came back here at this time of kind of real, it felt quite exciting to be to be back here. And for all those reasons I said at the beginning about, you know, how this nation has changed, the kind of conversations that we're having about identity, politics, responsibility, et et cetera. Um, But I would say right now I'm at a moment of probably more concern (laughs) uh, slash pessimism. I mean, obviously, in terms of broader geopolitics and in the world, there are many reasons to cry all day every day right now. so I'm I, I don't for a second want to discount what's happening in the world. Um, but also here it's felt like suddenly we had an election in November and for lots of different reasons, now we have a have a center right government and power. But if anything, I would say that government is tacking further and further to the right with lots of incredibly reactionary political discourse, which might lead into policy. And one of the big discussion points is, you know, there's a, a centre-right coalition government, a number of different political parties have formed a, a coalition. And one of these parties is now basically talking about um rewriting to some extent. Te Tiriti o Waitangi, the Treaty of Waitangi, which I mentioned to you earlier, or at least wanting to open some kind of broader national discussion about the relevance of that document to New Zealand as a nation, which I really, I think is, lots of people are arguing this, a way in which they're trying to question that as a foundational document of the nation. So what we're seeing is lots of, you know, reactionary discourse, racist discourse, Um, which is tapping into, I think, a lot of other kind of far-right, you know, um, very problematic movements that we're seeing in the world. So it's interesting. You know, I'm about to start teaching, again, courses on social change communication and this new communications degree we have in in here. And so I'm thinking about, okay, well, you know, a year ago, the examples I would have been using in my teaching and in class would have been probably... Mm -hmm. Jacinda as some kind of amazing world leader looking at her communication style at the power of her rhetoric and her persona um suddenly I'm looking to okay well where are we now a year later what kinds of examples from you know local quote-unquote local political communication or um you know what kinds of leadership communication or communication about the treaty or the environment you know it's looking very different a year later the kinds of Concrete examples I'm going to have to show. You know, we've suddenly got climate change deniers who are also MPs, and we've got all kinds of other interesting things that have been kind of sitting there in the background and are now much more in the fore of the public conversation here.
0: So, MPs, Member of Parliament, which is like being in Congress or Deputy or whatever. Yes, that is fascinating, isn't it? I mean, I guess if you were wandering around. Spain or Latin America or the United States, the only British prime minister anybody could name apart from Churchill would be Tony Blair. And the only prime minister where you are people could name would be Jacinda Ardern. Now, I, of course, want to talk about Piggy Muldoon and his extraordinary contributions to world peace and culture.
1: I wish we could just kind of splice in that little viral clip of Piggy Muldoon calling a snap election when he was drunk. People should look that up.
0: Oh, really? I didn't know about that. Well, there is. I do remember his remarkable statement when it was pointed out to him during his remarkable prime ministerships that there was net migration from where you are to Australia. And he said, oh, that's good. That'll increase the IQ average of both countries. So he did have some (laughs) smart things to say.
1: Very witty.
0: Yeah, yeah, good on you, Piggy. Go, go. Okay. So, Piggy was a, a far right, monstrous, but interesting. In and he was sort of the last of the economic protectionists in mm. their own New Zealand. Would that be more or less right?
1: Yes, I, yes, potentially. I wonder. Do I have enough knowledge of this? I feel like I need to ask some of my some of my media and comms esteemed media and comms. Pro- full prof colleagues here. I need to talk to my old mentor Wayne Hope from AUT for for the, for the the real fine to put a fine point on it. That sounds about right. But yes, Toby, what I was going to say is you made the point now. Jacinda is probably one of those people that in many parts of the world she would now be identified as. A, a kind of esteemed world leader and be kind of from New Zealand, right? This this becomes a yes. new selling point for us it's as a nation. Mind. And that's very interesting to me, right? Because this has always been one of my interests, as you well know, because my the the other key USP for this nation as a creative nation is is the hobbit, right? The 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 Lord of the Rings. So now we have two things that we can talk about with <laughs> Uber drivers when we're, you know, traveling some in some far corner of the world and we tell them we're from Aotearoa, New Zealand. We might get, oh, so Hobbits, Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings, and now we might also get, oh, Jacinda.
0: Let's move on to that. Well, first of all, can I just say I think the international profile she continues to have is your way into including her still in your course. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Yes, you're right. Yes. And yes, I didn't mean to say, yeah, simply because now she's, I mean, she is a bit, it's interesting. She's now, um, you know, she was so present in the the kind of national psyche for so long, especially during COVID, right? She would give us these national updates. I don't know if other people have other experiences of their leaders giving them kind of 6 p.m., news updates on how many cases and, and, you know, what they're doing to keep us safe. You know, she was there every day or few days. She's really, you know, she's, we don't know where she is right now. I think she might be at Harvard doing important, important work now. But you're right. It's not like she's not there. She's still very much there. So, so right.
0: she but will on, come up. But on to Peter Jackson. yes. His connection to his birthplace is strong, and you've yes. analysed over many years how that functions and what that means. Could you clue us in a bit to that story?
1: Sure. Yes, I. Uh, yes, Peter Jackson does have a have strong ties to this place. In fact, I think he owns. Quite a bit of this place. <laughs> <laughs> I would. I wish I could tell you exactly how much, uh, uh, how big of a landowner he is, but it, it's significant. Um, if anyone's interested, he has he has a compound somewhere in New Zealand where he, where he has built his own hobbit hole. I wish I could go there one day. I don't think I'll be allowed. Um, that's part of the compound, anyway. So. So Peter, Sir Peter, apologies, Sir Peter Jackson. Um, I have had an interest in for a long time. I should preface this by saying I have never met Sir Peter Jackson. I have ne- had never had any human interaction with him of any kind, even though I did try. So, in my again, when I was starting out as a young green uh, uh, teacher slash researcher. Um, my master's thesis at AUT, which is when I first met you, Toby, I, I recall, you very kindly examined that work. He, um, I was really interested then, this, these were the years when the first three Lord of the Rings films were were produced in New Zealand and it felt like a very interesting moment in the kind of, um, the trajectory of New Zealand as this kind of flourishing creative nation. When suddenly we were really kind of we were on. I'm using. I was using scare quotes there uh, mm. for, for mm. you listeners. Um, we we were really suddenly on the world on the on the world map here, and that was because you know Peter Jackson ensured that those films that he was directing were filmed in his home country, New Zealand, and he built all kinds of studio space and special effects studios were all a part of this kind of growth, this infrastructure development. And then also I think the kind of the growth of this image of New Zealand as a creative nation and one that could service big international productions like this. I mean, Peter Jackson was also a, he started out as a kind of an independent like horror filmmaker. If you've ever seen any of his early horror films, they were really DIY back cult classics here. Um, and, you know, then he kind of broke out in bigger Hollywood films and this was another step. So that early research, um, I was just really interested in looking at, you know, the kind of policy, the cultural policy, the film policies that had developed to support this position, you know, this growth of New Zealand as a location for this kind of huge um, Hollywood-financed um, film production Um I was interested also in how the, re- the the kind of discourse was shifting about how New Zealand was trying to present itself as a kind of a, as a creative nation and, and as a nation that, you know, at that time, I think, was wanting to build location filmmaking as a sustainable, long-term economic strategy. Um so I looked at policy then and the kind of rise of New Zealand as wellywood, which was the term that was then used. You know, these kind of woods get applied to all kinds of, <laughs> uh, you know, it's like Bollywood and Nollywood and, you know. I don't and this, know is which,
0: which this is Wellington. This you know, exactly. is Wellington, exactly.
1: Yeah, exactly, where Peter has always been based and where much of this infrastructure has been um filmmaking infrastructure that has been developed. You can go there now to kind of visit and do a tour and that kind of stuff. Um, so I guess at that time I was just, I was thinking quite critically about, you know, um, and I, there was a concern there, I think, for me about, I suppose, as a nation that also wants to support young up and coming New Zealand filmmakers and wanting to put resource into their work and build sustainable careers for them and their films that were t- that are telling, you know, you would ho- often stories about this place. Um, whether those things were compatible, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, which is a, a question that lots of people have been asking about. You know, where and how big lucrative areas of filmmaking move in the world, and does that support local industry as much as it supports, you know, the big, footloose like Hollywood productions and players. Um, so I'm still interested in that work. I mean, that was done, that work was done a long time ago, but you're right. I've kept coming back to it, even when I I wasn't based here. Um, there have been some other moments, I suppose, when the it, it feels like the kind of image of Wellywood has kind of shifted in interesting ways or developed in interesting ways. So there was another period where um, employment law was changed, an article that um, I wrote about that, but lots of other people did too. Um, oh, again, it's hard to sort of summarise, but a moment in which employment law was changed um, to ensure that local filmmakers and local film workers would never be considered permanent employees, would always be considered in a New Zealand employment law to be contract workers, which was a real boon, again, to the, you know, the kind of international filmmaking players that come to places like New Zealand still because our labour is relatively cheap, you know. So um, I guess I've always been interested, you know, my whole career I've been really interested in cultural work generally, how workers making, you know, films or writing scripts or, you know, I don't know, doing the running on a film set, you know, any kind of people who would who are adjacent to or interested in working in generally what is called the cultural or creative industries, what that work is like, how it's understood and experienced, um, this, its status in terms of its like employment relations and how well that work is remunerated and resourced. Um, and then and, and then at a kind of some bigger levels in terms of, you know, policy and infrastructure, um, how those workers are viewed or understood as part of say a, creative nation where and how we see the work that gets done to build cultural workers i mean yeah again often the focus is on people like sir peter jackson you know they're the big people who kind of take up all the energy in the room who are seen to be the kind of pioneers um who i guess kind of they're the ones pushing for change to policy or employment law or anything else and i'm also often interested in well you know what about the workers who's work will be materially impacted by these changes in different ways. Um, so that's still what interests me. Um, but when, you, when so- you
0: were in Britain, you moved into researching something you've already briefly mentioned, screenwriting, scriptwriting. I think that became the yeah. your foci. Sorry to interrupt there. Mm-hmm. So please continue. Please, please finish your thought. Right. But could you also tell us a wee bit about the screenwriting story and this connected to gender, which is something we talked about with reference to Jacinda Ardern a little bit but haven't discussed much. No. And gender and, and screenwriting questions became quite important during your tender in the UK.
1: That is right. That's absolutely right, Toby, done in your research. Um, yeah, when I came to – when I moved to the UK, that was – um to do my phd which was at goldsmiths and you know as i'd said i'd done that work on the new zealand film industry and lord of the rings and again policy and asking some questions there but you know at that time as i said i was i was really interested in thinking more about the status of particular kinds of cultural workers um and that was an interesting moment to move to the UK and start thinking about that. Like, there I was working with um, Prof Angela McRobbie, who I'm sure um, many of your listeners will know and know her incredible uh, work in the cultural studies field. And, um, but there were also lots of other people at that time, quite a few in the UK, but not only in the UK, that were starting to research and think about, you know, really this kind of subfield that now might be called studies of cultural work or creative labor or the other neologisms and terms that get used for it. But Angela obviously was very influential for me. I was looking then to do a a study of a particular kind of cultural worker because I thought that would make sense for a PhD project. And then what got me really to... I'd, I'd talked to a few screenwriters in New Zealand for the earlier work and um, I found that particularly interesting. I guess I was already thinking a bit about what's the status of the screenwriter as a kind of writer and to what extent do they get respect or not in the hierarchy of, of you know, work in the film industry. Um, but then it was an interesting moment. I started doing the work when the... 2007 and 2008 US writers' strikes uh, played out, and so that was a very interesting moment. We've been through one much more recently, um, when all of a sudden the kind of yeah, the status of the screenwriter was was sort of elevated in the in the you know in the news and in the in the kind of general discussion. I found it really interesting. That was the first time I think I'd seen a kind of a, a, a person that you would call a creative worker out on strike. It's not something I don't think that I had personally seen before. And that just started to raise a whole lot of interesting questions to me. You know, A, I didn't know much about why they were striking, so I started to look into that. Um, and I was thinking at the same time about, okay, so what is this – you know, who else has written about the screenwriter as a worker and as the history of that? I mean, I knew stuff had been done in the States, but I then developed a study for the PhD that was looking um at the, the careers and the experiences of screenwriters based in London, because that's where I was at the time. Mm-hmm. So I interviewed, I ended up interviewing a number of writers who were at various different stages of their careers about. How they built a career, so it was it was really at that that basic level of questioning. You know, how did you start out? How you know where did you begin? What were your aspirations? Um, it was also looking at the kind of portfolio nature of their career. Um, how do you sustain? A, you know, what are, what are the various income streams? What else do you do to make money? Can you make money as a screenwriter? What other kinds of jobs do you need to get? Um, you know. How do you, what what is your status? What do you feel your status is in relation to the other creatives that you work with, like on a film or a television project? Um, and it was really, you know, it was all it was. There was there were quite biographical interviews, but all kinds of interesting stuff started to come out. And of course, the strikes were ongoing. A lot of those writers who I spoke to were on strike when we spoke. Um, yeah, about you know what they often felt was their really degraded status in in the kind of hierarchy of cultural workers or um film workers they often felt maybe all film you know all creative writers do they felt really invisible often Um, you know they often found their work to be akin to a kind of torture um, you know and often they couldn't make a living as a writer so they did all other kinds of stuff and i found that really interesting you know Lots of them maybe unsurprisingly taught screenwriting, so I found that very interesting. You know, they they were aware that they had limited career and job opportunities, but they were also nurturing new screenwriters, right, to build their own careers, even though I think they felt often quite... Um, torn about that you know they were presenting a you know career desires and opportunities to a new crop of writers when they themselves couldn't necessarily build their own or sustain their own careers i thought that was quite an interesting um ethical dilemma and you know i also looked at um, i ended up writing a whole chapter on the on the realm of the screenwriting manual because that was another thing they often did was they wrote books or gave seminars you know, they were actually, an, you know, they were a different kind of entrepreneur, right? So they kind of um, modeled themselves as a kind of a guru. And that was often the kind of, you hear about these screenwriting gurus, right? Who do a, do a seminar, they kind of uh, the McKee type. I'm trying to think of his first name now. That's terrible that I've blanked on that. Um, is it Robert McKee? Um, yeah, the kind of the guru screenwriter, the, the person who, you know, just makes a career out of writing a screenwriting handbook, then giving a seminar, talking about the three-act structure, um, and selling that as the kind of package that then built them a sustainable career. So I just found it really interesting that screenwriting was so many different things, you know, and it had um, this kind of portfolio career that a screenwriter then had to build up. I found I found very interesting. And lots of other people were were... This was a kind of a time when, I mean, you know, again, I was in a in, in the UK and um, there were other people doing other kinds of studies of kind of Anglophone cultural workers, you know, different kinds of new media workers or, you know, people working in television or, you know, there was these interesting empirical studies starting to emerge, mm-hmm. um, looking at, you know, different kinds of cultural work focusing on the production you know um of tv film you know literature whatever it might be so it was quite an interesting time i think this was into the kind of yeah early 2010s when i then and then i started teaching at king's college london so i so we ended up kind of teaching and continuing to work on these kinds of issues through that time now i haven't spoken about gender much yet um but, you know, again, as I said, I was working with Angela uh, McRobbie. And the other thing that became really interesting um, to me was thinking about the gender dynamics of cultural work and screenwriting work especially. Um, again, at the time, there was there was some interesting start- discussions that were starting to come out about questions, of, basic questions like, oh, why aren't there more women? writing or doing x kind of cultural activity you know um there were some interesting reports that came out of the uk from from people within places like the film council um that were starting to kind of produce stats and numbers um but i also found it really interesting that um Yeah, this was sort of something that wasn't necessarily discussed by those that I spoke to. You know, they kind of, if I asked um, someone that identified themselves as a woman and as a screenwriter about, you know, well, how do you find being a, woman screenwriter working in these industries? Mm. You know, often the response that came back was, oh, well, I would never think of myself in that way. I'm just a screenwriter. You know, there was a kind of a... um, it's not about our identity categories. It's just about doing the work that we do. And again, I was getting to know some other people, other scholars. Um, my colleague, Christina Schaff, who I worked with at King's College London, had written a book called um, Repudiating Feminism, in which she talks about this, right? She was interviewing just a young women who talk about feminism and talk about how often that was repudiated Um so often as an identity, identity category. And it seems like often that was the same thing within the industry, you know, to, to talk about the quote unquote diversity problem. Well, that was so often just kind of pushed to the side, right? It's when you talk about creative work, you know, that stuff doesn't matter, right? You don't talk about your gender identity. You don't talk about your ethnicity. You just talk about your creative identity, But again, it was really interesting to start thinking about, okay, well, what, you know, in popular culture, how is the screenwriter presented to us? And, you know, unsurprisingly, it's so obvious they were still often presented as white, male, neurotic, uh, et cetera. So it was interesting to start thinking about um, gender as playing into and, um, you know, discussed or not. With with screenwriters themselves about how they understood issues of inequality playing into the work that they do. Again, that's become a more prominent, much more prominent discussion. Yeah, I yeah.
0: Think. Confessional moment, Prof. When I lived in LA, oh. I went out on an internet date with someone who was the only gal in a boy dominated writers room for a very famous sitcom, and. Oh, wow. After as you can imagine I was totally jazzed by this and all I wanted to do was talk to her about the terrible sexism of the dudes and so on and she looked uh-huh. me with a mixture of pity and horror and said is this a date or are you just trying to interview me <laughs> and uh, yeah, in she a point, yeah, she well I didn't even know that this was her thing until we met and then I just zeroed in on this because it was really interesting to me. And, of course, she got up and left in a polite way. But, mm. yeah, it was a bad outcome. So, um. Prof, you've, you've got this trajectory that is international but with some things in common across sites. There's one term you've been using quite a lot, creative, and you've referred mm-hmm. to the idea of creative New Zealand, creative industries, creative class, and so on. How does that relate to the idea of culture? Cultural worker, creative worker. Are they one and the same?
1: Yeah, this is what a great question. I mean, oh, it's so interesting. When I when I worked at King's in London, the, the department where I worked, where I have still many wonderful friends and colleagues, was called Culture, Media and Creative Industries and that was interesting to be to be in under under the umbrella of those three terms i didn't come up with that but um this is interesting i mean yeah again as 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 more people have started kind of thinking about and publishing in this area we have we have lots of work we could we could refer to here you know there are certain people that i think would use um only cultural labor they would talk about cultural labor very specifically i'm thinking about someone like mark banks you know who's written a lot about the politics i think his book is called the politics of cultural cultural work um and would really kind of distinguish that i think to uh, not to to put words in mark's mouth you'd have to read the book but distinguish that very clearly from the idea of say the creative industries Right. I mean, the creative industries is a term that if you know anything about the UK um, and the kind of creative Britannia movement and, you know, all kinds of stuff there grew as a site for, again, kind of like boosterism and policy making. Right. It goes back to what I said about the, the rise of of New Zealand as a creative nation. You know, I use the scare quotes because that was the term that the policy wonks uh, used at that time, right? The the creative had the had the had the juice, you know, that was the, we're going to pour the money into, mm. that was the kind of shiny new way to describe you know, an economic category, right? This is going to be about a new kind of money making for the nation, a hot, cool creative nation. Um, so I think that is now was at that time distinguished very much, the rise of the creative industries as a set of, you know, related industries that produced creative products that could be profitable and could be imbued with all kinds of coolness. Um, And then that is distinguished very much, I think, by particular scholars from, from, the cultural you know from from something else that would be that it's not necessarily about you know an in a kind of an industry categorization or sectorization right that puts the creative industries into different kinds of categories for trade and enterprise purposes um I mean, it's interesting because for me personally, you know, that book that I wrote about screenwriting, I'm trying to think of the name now, Screenwriting as Creative Labour, I think it was called. Um, and I can't remember the subtitle. that's terrible, something, something in professional practice. But at that time, you know, I used the term creative labour most prominently in that book. Um and I, you know, talked about what I thought creative labour was. I guess I was kind of, you know, at that time, as I said, then I was working in a department where we were teaching the creative industries. It was in our title, right? We were, we were talking, we were t- teaching students who were incredibly international and were often coming from different parts of the world about this particular, you know, British version the Its creative industries, what they wore, how they were categorized of course we were it was this was we weren't taking this at face value, we were looking at this critically and how this had been formed as something that was then implemented in policy and practice but um but I use the term creative labor now more and more <laughs> as as other people have done research you know and thinking about this you know they have become much more clear that they would use the term cultural work rather than creative labor and probably if i was going to go back now i'm not sure that i would use the term creative labor in the title and then most prominently in the book but it, it i'm not i'm not quite sure how i feel about um about that distinction but i suppose it's now seen to be well creative labor is it somehow tainted or it's, 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 you assume creative labor operates in that formation, which is the creative industries.
0: And you also prof produced the creativity and gender publication.
1: Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That was the other thing that came out of that, um, that time, that was an, that was an edited collection, gender and creative labor that, um, that I worked on with Prof Roslyn Gill and Prof Steph Taylor. Uh, hello to them both out in the ether. Um, and, yeah, yeah, again, we use the same term, right? So that's interesting. I <laughs> forgot about that one. No, I hadn't, truly. Um, where, you know, we kind of, we were thinking about who else has thought about the gender dynamics, of working in the creative industries. Again, I worked with Roz at that time at King's. Um, It was an edited collection where we we were trying to bring together lots of the work that that was the interesting work that we thought was being done that was focused on, you know, in general terms, gendered inequalities and how they could be understood in different ways and different kinds of um, creative industries. And again, yeah, we used the term, creative labor you know again not uncritically but um you know we were kind of trying to take the temperature and look at okay well what's the work that's being done right now and it was all kinds of different stuff you know kind of young women doing internships and different kinds of creative industries it was it was in different um different parts although largely again of the anglophone world um And it'd be interesting. I should ask Ros and Steph if we were going to do that again or if we were going to do a new edition, if we were ever asked to, would would it still be gender and creative labour? That's interesting. I'm not sure.
0: Prof B, I've got a couple more questions for you, and then I'd like to throw it to you to subtract from or add to what we've already discussed. Does that sound okay? Absolutely. Sounds great. So... You haven't dumped PJ. He's not. Oh no, I've never
1: dumped Sir, Sir no. PJ.
0: he's not an ex-boyfriend, who is. Oh no, 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 no! no. Forever, no. He's like right? a
1: kind, he's like a kindly uncle t-
0: type who. Kind, kindly uncle type.
1: In his whole, still doing his good works.
0: What about Mrs. Cole, the former Mrs. Cole play? <laughs> Where are your effective relations with?
1: Oh, should we talk about conscious uncoupling? Shall we? We could. Well, we, we might have to come back for a whole other
0: your your conscious, conscious recoupling from PJ yes. to GP. Yes. How about that?
1: How about it? Look, I don't know what to tell you, Toby. It's it's isn't this the joy of 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 operating in the cultural studies world? You can just sort of, you can just you can just dip and dive. You can just suddenly say.
0: I'm an expert I'm in, on
1: I I'm interested. I want to know more about goop. I I could be the goop expert if the I just Goop's
0: the go to goop gal.
1: Oh, for my sins. Look. Look. What what <laughs> I'm gonna try to summarize this. Um you know, uh I at some point in this in this career trajectory to 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 kind of get personal again I went on maternity leave and had a child that's an interesting moment to go back to kind of a a gendered subjectivity in academia I I I did I did a different kind of labor for a while and that was the first time I'd, I'd you know stepped out of the kind of, um, stepped away from the very intense treadmill of an academic uh, career, and I suppose then I was kind of mentally deranged for a while in the best possible way, but I was sort of just interested in doing something else. I guess I was just ranging around like you do out of things and this um, so where are we now we might be kind of 2018 2017 18 I had my daughter in 2018 and um, yeah I, I all of a sudden I guess I just was thinking Gwyneth Paltrow just started coming across my 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 radar quite a lot This was partly because I was still in London and Goop was just arriving physically in London at that time. If anyone doesn't know what Goop is, just for your listeners, Goop is the wellness empire business that Gwyneth Paltrow founded, um, I think it says on the website, from her kitchen table in London, in two thousand and eight. So Goop actually, you know, is a as a British crea- you know, a new creative industries two point oh, three point British badged brand. And it's uh become hugely profitable. It's ha- it's kind of Gwyneth Paltrow has become this kind of center of the wellness universe, I suppose you could say for better or worse. She's loved and hated. Um, I guess I just was interested in what wellness was as a thing. Um, I was also interested in what Gwyneth was doing as a, as a, as a, as a prominent cultural figure who we knew as an actress, but who suddenly said she was retiring from acting. Maybe she was a singer for a second as well. I feel like she had a few other kind of, um... Uh, aspects to her portfolio career, then suddenly she was calling. You know, she was calling. She was saying, "Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm all of those. I was all of those things. Now I'm a wellness entrepreneur. I'm a wellness guru. I'm a different kind of guru. Maybe the guru is the link. You know, I was looking at the screenwriting gurus, and then I was suddenly interested in a different kind of guru. But yeah, Goop had arrived in London physically, so it was it had kind of come out of the so the very particular SoCal." Uh, I've seen it was all very kind of LA green smoothies um, crystal healing auras as I, the list could go on but it had arrived back into London so there were phys- there were goop stores that had arrived in London in 2017 and they were starting to run kind of goop branded wellness conferences in-person conferences where you could go pay a staggering amount for a ticket see Gwyneth in the flesh do some crystal healing with a group of largely women uh, in in London so it was just interested in like why was Goop suddenly arriving physically in this space and time so I remember going when I was quite heavily pregnant to one of the Goop stores as part of my research you know it's always good to just get out there, pound those streets, see what you can find, was one of the most alienating consumer experiences I've ever had in my whole life. I mean, I had to go to a really posh part of London that I've probably never been to. I think I was just probably ignored um, because there was no way I was going to kind of spend big on all the wellness uh, items that could be purchased in the store. But I was just interested in... Yeah, I don't know what this kind of new formation and industry was, what wellness was doing as a term. Um why it was suddenly becoming so popular, um and like what the actual work of it was, like if you were going to become a wellness entrepreneur that seems now to be a viable career path for Gwyneth or anyone else. Uh why? What is that what does that actually mean and what is that doing so I ha- I have published a little bit on this you know I've I wrote an article about where I tried to understand a bit about what Goop is and therefore who Gwyneth Paltrow is I I looked at at the Instagram feed for Goop as they launched a particular product and that was also just because I'd actually never done really anything in terms of um using social media and looking at at that you know as a kind of as a as an empirical source of data um no expert but I gave it a try um but the other reason Toby just to say that I found wellness very interesting in that moment was because also as a kind of a as an academic as a worker I felt I was being subject to much more wellness or well-being discourse in my own workplace you know uh, yeah, you're making the vomit sign. But I, but that was suddenly became really prominent. I remember at King's College London at that moment was we were suddenly being sent information all the time about how to maximize our well-being and our wellness. You know, the, 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 that term was just suddenly there where it hadn't been before. You know, and it was all about like, you know, individual exhortations to what you need to do to make yourself better. You know, like you must find time to do the meditation at your desk, you know. Or find practice a self care routine, or you know, go to the gym. Not that they'd pay for it, or whatever. You know, here is what you must do. And I just the well, it, it was. I just found that a, a very interesting that that was happening at the same time yes. that the was filling up my feed. And, so that is still what really is interesting me right now. And
0: this isn't my last question, but this is more an observation. Every now and then, I read. A slightly snarky column by a feminist in the Groniad, making fun of Gwyneth Paltrow, especially about vaginal applications.
1: Oh, yes, the famous Jade Egg.
0: And I read these things and I laugh along with the author, but I feel a bit protective of GP. I feel a bit <laughs> sad somehow when I read these things and feel as though I'm climbing in on a rather <laughs> snide criticism somehow.
1: I I totally agree. This is one of the things I find very, very interesting about it is um yeah, I think she's such uh um she's this um person and creature of of, of total ridicule at this point. I mean, you're right, all of those pieces are so snide and um you know they just—it's dripping with disdain. These these pieces, absolutely dripping. And I remember even back in it would have been twenty seventeen. You know, I mentioned those Goop in person conferences. You know, people again the, the same journalists. I'm sure were being sent to those conferences to write the, the to write the snarky think pieces, right? They were just like, oh, here we go. Gwyneth's got an in-person com- send our best, you know, feminist commentators to rip this, rip this a new one, basically. So that's that's like that's always that's always been there. Um and again I felt I found myself doing the exact same thing, you know, looking through the you know the conference program.
0: Then looking, you won't at- believe this. Oh my God, this is so <laughs> stupid, right? And of course, I feel the same way when I read these columns.
1: Exactly. But I've like
0: got the- this other side of me that thinks, "Ugh, I don't like filing in on this woman." So
1: no, I know, I know, and I, 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 I agree. I, I, I'm, I feel a similar, I feel a similar impulse, and I'm not sure where it comes from, but I kind of. That was definitely my feeling at that time. I was kind of like, this needs this needs this needs feminist, deep feminist and out, like this is very this there's something very interesting here. I mean the other interesting thing was was that there was so much talk about, and again I think I was kind of thinking about this too, so much talk about the whiteness of it all. You know, it wasn't just it wasn't just kind of oh Gwyneth she's uh, she's such a terrible person. It was also the kind of that the real myopic focus on you know wellness as 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 whiteness and you know again Gwyneth Paltrow being the ultimate uh, embodiment of that of that kind of thing. Mm. So so again this is interesting right? Like at times I felt this is this kind of disdain and this this again it's sort of right like writing off the whole thing and saying god gwyneth she's just this is just she's cracked this is ridiculous i guess i had a similar protective mechanism because i was kind of like no there's something else really there's so much more here that's really interesting i don't necessarily know what it all is but the, the, this is this is this is something to really look at closely. And subsequently there have been some, I, I think wellness still needs so much. I, I really would like more people within cultural studies. Here's a general call out to, to, I think wellness, yeah, there's there's so much here, which is interesting. But there have been some really interesting studies and some that are ongoing. I'm thinking of someone like Rachel O'Neill, who's currently doing really, really interesting work on, on the on wellness entrepreneurs, and i think thinking really interesting in really interesting ways there about work um about ethnicity about gender um and and many other things so i don't have all the answers there but um you're absolutely right the 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 and disdain is is really the kind of the the first reaction and it's often all anyone ever does and you you just don't think beyond that
0: i think that Apart from writing a cultural biography of Sharon O'Neill, there's probably nothing more urgent than analysing. <laughs> Join me, Toby, please. <laughs> so <laughs> my, my last question, Prof, is this. I'm a keen as mustard, 23-year-old who wants to do a doctorate. I've found your office. I've knocked the oh. door at the university and you're there. There's no oh, Mm -hmm. I walk in, I say, Prof. BC, I want to do a PhD in cultural studies. How do I do it?
1: (laughs) And then I need to provide a powerful, uplifting, galvanizing response.
0: Yeah, this is... You know, Chris Martin meets meets Gwyneth Paltrow for the conscious coupling, not decoupling, (laughs) but it's not sexual. It's a meeting of minds between you and the young person.
1: Right.
0: Okay. come to you for advice as a senior female academic, internationally renowned, and who can give this person the goods.
1: Oh, Toby, I mean great question but it's also really like what on earth to say I mean yeah yeah do what I did and just kind of just just sift around like a magpie and just see what catches your eye and then just do some do some really sharp right turns where you just suddenly get bored and you're just like, no, I'm not interested in that anymore. I'm just gonna duck over here and suddenly suddenly look at like crystal healing and, and stuff. I would just say this is the beauty of cultural studies.
0: So there's something there about agility.
1: Is there something there about agility? I suppose there is. There is. See, that worries me because I'm a bit worried I'm, I'm going to start talking about agility and resilience and employability <laughs> and some of really kind of problematic and disdainful terms. So, I, n- no. No. But, um, I don't want to become that that person, no. no. But agility, I suppose agility is interesting. Agility is interesting. Um I don't know. I just cultural studies is so rich and full of good people. Maybe that's the maybe that's the advice. Find the good people. Mm-hmm. Find the good people. The people that that at an intellectual level that that really that really kind of gas you up, and um, and that you think are doing the most interesting fun work and then join them in that fun pursuit i mean it's just all about the people isn't it and the fun
0: we're back to the cultural biography of sharon and neil really aren't we
1: <laughs> we're right back there
0: there's no escaping once she's got you in her grasp you're done for really that's it. um and that's for those who it. don't know who she is look it up
1: <laughs> <laughs> Do your homework.
0: Do your homework, come on. So, Prof, (laughs) to wind up, are there things that we've touched on that you'd like to add to? Are there things we've missed that you'd like to discuss to conclude matters?
1: Oh, I mean, I'm sure there's absolutely stacks, and I'm going to be up tonight absolutely stressing about all the things that, that were not said and all the amazing work that was not, that was not, that was not acknowledged. I don't know. As a way to finish, I guess I would say to to come back to where we started. I mean, what was the first question you asked? Sort of like, what was what was grinding my gears at the moment? Or what was that's that's me paraphrasing? You know, what was interesting to me, to me right now. I mean, one thing I've had very little time to think about right now and where I am in Aotearoa New Zealand, but which I would like to think more about if I ever have a moment of thought to sit and have a thought, (laughs) um, is how wellness links to this, you know, far right reactionary political stuff that I have, that I have made reference to. And like, we know there are strong links between these two things and again, some people have done some really interesting work looking how at how wellness entrepreneurs of different kinds very quickly started becoming during, during the worst parts of the pandemic, you know, like anti-vaccine conspiracy theorists very, very quickly. And I think there's some really interesting, you know, fertile ground that people are starting to look at. That are trying to understand, like, yeah, how wellness can become something quite dark and disturbing quite quickly, and I'm wondering what that might look at for me here in the next few years. You know, where um, we have really quite a lot of a lot of like homegrown versions of Gwyneth Paltrow, the 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 hyper local artisanal we talked about this as an artisanal conversation, hyperlocal artisanal wellness gurus of Aotearoa New Zealand. Um, I'm just, maybe we could talk again in a few years. I'm going to be really interested in this p- political and social moment to see what that's going to look like here. Fantastic. In coming, in
0: coming thank in, you, so. Professor Bridget Connor. Thank you so much. Your work is wonderful and I've enjoyed enormously talking to you today.
1: Hobie, thank you so much for having me. Of course, your work has been so influential to me and so inspirational. And it's honestly such a privilege and a delight to be with you. So thank you for all of your work.